Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Doug Swenson. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the non-vocational elders here at CRC. And one of the things that means is you get a free sermon this morning. <laughs> There's no charge to, uh, to what I'm going to say, so if you want a refund, Pastor Brett will give you a full refund as you leave uh, this morning. I get this opportunity about once a year to uh, share with you, so it's a, a rare privilege for me to do that. So, Oh, I'm sorry. If the kids, 4 through 10, want to go to the children's devotional, they can be dismissed at this time, and we will bring them back in at the end of the sermon. So you don't have to go looking for them afterwards. That's what happens when you're only up here once every year or so. You forget about that. So. We're going to be talking about afflictions this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And even though our subject is afflictions, my desire for us is to think about the hope that these, these three verses just kind of exude or just boils over, if you will, the hope that is ours in Jesus. So that's my goal this, for us this morning, to focus on the hope that is ours in Christ. So before we read these three verses, let's pray once more. Father, you've brought us together to worship you to turn our hearts towards you, to praise you, but also to receive from you. So this morning as we think about your word and and meditate on it and mull it over, Father, would you work in our hearts? Would your spirit speak to us? And would we be able to see Jesus in your word this morning as we worship you? In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All of us have some kind of affliction or afflictions, whether you're a six-year-old and you fall off your bike and lose some skin, or you have a friend, close friend, that fails your expectations, or maybe you have a boss that asks you to do something that you know is wrong, or you've got an illness that just lingers and lingers and won't go away, or the grief from the loss of a loved one, Or maybe you lose your air conditioning on Friday, one of the hottest days of the year. All of us have some kind of affliction that we're facing. We live in a world that is just not the way it was intended to be. It wasn't created to be this way. Sin has affected every area of our lives, whether you're young or old or everywhere in between. Just a bit of warning, if your life is going really, really well right now, if everything's rosy and you don't have any kind of affliction whatsoever, you need to do two things. One is to be very thankful to God for what he's been giving you right now. And the other would simply be to examine yourself. What is going on in your life that there aren't any afflictions for you. 
You know, we all have a tendency to insure ourselves against anything that might harm us or hurt us or cause us any kind of a trial. I remember several years ago when we lived in California, our church sent a group to Haiti for a couple of weeks on a missions trip. When they got back, they shared how it, on one experience they were traveling, they got a, accosted by some gunmen who were intending to rob them. And it was only by God's grace that they, they were able to get away from these gunmen. And when they were talking about that, I was thinking, when they got back, I was thinking, boy, you know, I'm glad I wasn't with them. And then the next year, we were going to send another team to Haiti. And this time, it was going to be largely young people that were going to uh, operate a summer camp for the youth there. And our two kids, Carrie and Carl, were going to go. And my first thought was, last year those guys went, and there were a couple of gunmen that held them up on the way. Maybe they shouldn't be going. And then somebody told me, you know, they do need a carpenter down there to do some work. And my thought was, yeah, but last year those guys got stopped by some real-life gunmen. We all have that hesitation in our hearts sometimes. We insure ourselves against any possibility of affliction sometimes, either literally by buying insurance or just figuratively avoiding certain areas, avoiding certain people. I did go to Haiti that time, and I didn't get held up by any gunmen. I did hear at the compound I was at every night we woke up to the sound of gunfire outside of a compound, but the missionary said, oh, that's just some bad guys robbing people, so don't worry about it. <clears throat> but we do that, don't we? We insure ourselves against any possibility of things going wrong at times. So if you're not facing any sort of affliction this morning, thank the Lord and then examine your heart to see where you're at with him. Our text this morning, these three verses, are part of a bigger section where Paul is talking about comparing our earthly bodies with our spiritual nature and contrasting what happens with both of them. Earlier in chapter 4, he mentions words like we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And our text this morning gives us some sense or an explanation or purpose for our afflictions. Paul experienced exactly what he's writing about here. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he lists several things that he has suffered. Imprisonments, countless beatings, How many beatings do you have to endure before they start to become countless? Often near death. Five times he received 39 lashes from the Jews. Five times. Okay, 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Stoned once. Shipwrecked three times. You stop and think of all that. For a moment. Let that sink in. It's almost enough to make you cringe when you think about that, of what he endured. What do you suppose his body looked like after all of that? The scars, maybe some deformities, maybe some broken bones that maybe didn't heal right? I don't know. He probably didn't look very attractive from a world's standpoint. Maybe that's why 
the Corinthians said this about him. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Paul's not some academic, ivory-towered theologian who goes through the Old Testament and thinks about things that he can write about that are spiritual. He's lived every bit of what he's writing to us about here. He knows of what he speaks. He's been there. He's done that. He understands afflictions. So, let's dig into these three verses a little bit more in detail. Paul's speaking to believers here, people who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, who have been born again from above. He's not talking about an initial experience of salvation here. He's talking about people who have believed in Jesus as their Savior. Verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. He's making a comparison here between this shell, this outer body, our physical body, what we can see and touch and feel, and he's making that comparison with our spiritual inner nature, that that we cannot see. One's going downhill. This thing here that we're wearing is wasting away. The other nature is improving. It's being renewed, built up. It's getting better. I don't know about you, but I started seeing the reality of this outer nature wasting away sometime in my mid-30s. Started to develop a few more aches and pains. It's harder to do some things. And it slowly gets worse over the years, I can assure you of that. We're all deteriorating on the outside. But our inner man is being renewed. It's in the process of being restored back to what our Creator intended it to be. And the reason that we do not have to lose heart or be dismayed or discouraged or faint-hearted is given to us in verse 17. Look there at that first word in verse 17. It says, for, or you could say, because. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because this is happening, we do not have to lose heart or to be discouraged. There's a reason for that. Paul's making another comparison here, and I'm going to use the New American Standard translation in making that comparison. The New American Standard says momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The comparison is between this momentary light affliction and an eternal weight of glory. One's momentary The other is eternal. We all know what a moment is. We use that expression often when somebody tells us to do something or asks us to do something. We say, wait a moment. Give me a moment. And what we mean is, all right, I'll do what you ask in just a couple seconds. All right? On the other hand, eternity just goes on and on and on. We have no way of really comprehending that in our minds right now. What does eternity mean? It goes on and on and on as compared to just the moment in time. We have an easier time discerning what light and weight is. You have a light piece of paper and a weighty five-gallon bucket of paint, for example. Or we say things like, I bumped into the door and I got a light bruise on my arm. 
versus something significant, like I broke my arm when I fell down or something similar to that. Something light versus something weighty. The weight is something massive, something significant, something eternal, something glorious for us. And then comparing or trying to compare afflictions with glory is a whole other story for us. We can identify with afflictions. All of us have them. But how do we describe glory? What do we picture in our mind? Well, one definition is simply that it's God's glory and it's the sum of all of his various attributes. All of God rolled into one word that we call glory. It's the essence of who he is, the sum of all that he is. It's often associated with a brilliant light, as when Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the law. His face was so bright that people couldn't look at it, and he had to put a veil over his face. It's God's greatness, his worthiness. It's the ultimate goal of all things in this life. God's glory. And compared to our afflictions, there really isn't any comparison. Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Now, how could Paul think this way? How could he talk this way? How could he write like that? What reason could he have to base this statement on? Well, think about this as a possibility for a reason for why he might say something. We know that God told Paul what he was going to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's in the account in Acts when Paul was on his way to Damascus and he was blinded by the light and he was blind for several days and God told Ananias to go talk to Paul and pray for him but God also told Ananias that he was going to tell Paul the things that he was going to have to suffer for the sake of Christ. So Paul knew what was ahead of him. We also know that Paul had an experience of being caught up into paradise and seeing and hearing some things that no man is permitted to speak about. What if that was God's way of showing Paul the eternal weight of glory that was awaiting him? that his suffering was preparing for him. So Paul experienced the sufferings. He also had a hint of that eternal weight of glory that was going to be coming to him. Was that be enough for him to endure the stoning, the beatings, the lashings, very possibility that that was what drove Paul on, that eternal weight of glory that he saw when he was drawn up into paradise. Now, notice the verb in between these two phrases. Afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Preparing or the New American Standard says producing. It's the whole idea of something's at work. Something's being produced or prepared for us. Most of you work at a job, and you know that if you're not producing at that job, you're going to be gone shortly. You need to be working at it, preparing something, producing something. And that's the idea here, 
that our afflictions are at work for us. Paul uses the phrase in the New American Standard far beyond all comparison to describe what our afflictions are preparing for us or producing. Something fabulous is awaiting us. And it's almost like he cannot come up with enough descriptions worthy of what our afflictions are preparing for us. He says, far beyond all comparisons. He just keeps going. He's running out of superlatives to write about. He can't think of enough of them to describe the worth of this glory. I looked up the literal translation of that phrase, uh, the worth of his, or uh, beyond all comparison, and it literally means excessively to excess. That's what's being prepared for us. Something excessively to excess. Usually we talk about excess in a negative way. We eat too much to excess, or we drink too much to excess, or we talk too much to excess. This is a very positive, excessively to excess thing that's being prepared for us. But there's a condition here. Look at verse 18, the first word there. As. Okay, there's a condition name there. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are, I'm sorry, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The condition is there depending on where we're looking. Right? Now, I can tell you, look over there at one of those footprints on the wall, and you just kind of glance over. It's just a look, a quick glance. That's not the idea here with the word look. It's more like a thoughtful consideration, a thinking about, or a being occupied with. And our natural tendency is to look and focus our attention on things that we can see with our physical eyes. In our case, this morning we're talking about afflictions. But how can we possibly look at something unseen? From a human perspective, that's the most absurd statement anyone could ever make. Really. How can you, expect, how can you be expected to see the unseen. That's ridiculous. And the short answer, of course, is we can't. Not on our own, not on our own ability. It has to be a supernatural work of God's Spirit to open our eyes to a spiritual reality that he wants us to see. It's God's grace poured out on us as believers. Maybe a couple of other scriptures would help us here. First in Ephesians, where Paul prays this. He's asking that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians would be enlightened to see, and he lists three things there. One, the hope to which God has called us. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe. All three of those things, we can't possibly see them with our physical eyes. We have to have an awakening or an opening in our spirit to see them. The hope to which God has called us, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Just like you can't measure eternity, we can't measure the, in the greatness of his power towards us who believe. Among which is the power 
to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory. A second passage that might help us about seeing the unseen is found in Hebrews 11. That whole chapter is one we usually label the faith chapter, and rightly so because that's its main topic. But if you read it carefully, you'll discover that there's several references to the unseen in that chapter. Phrases like, in verse 1, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 7, concerning events as yet unseen. Or speaking about Abraham in that chapter, he did not know where he was going. Looking forward to the city that has foundations. Having seen the promises from afar, but not receiving them. Or seeking a heavenly home that he couldn't see. Or speaking about Moses in chapter 11, he endured as seeing him who is unseen. The him that Moses saw was the promised one, the Messiah, the lamb who would be sacrificed for our sins, namely Jesus. Moses saw the unseen Jesus. His eyes were open to see that. The Old Testament saints that are listed there in chapter 11 of Hebrews were looking for Jesus, but they didn't receive the promise of his coming. Or we could simply say they didn't see the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. Or as Paul refers to it earlier here in chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's the gospel that we need to keep our eyes on. When I was younger... I had this desire to move beyond the old, old story. Maybe some of you remember that hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story of Jesus and His Love. I I kind of got tired of that old, old story, and I often thought of, I want something better. I want something higher. I want something beyond the old, old story. I'd heard that countless times that Jesus had died for my sins. And I knew that. I believed that. But I wanted something higher than that. Something better than that old, old story. But over the years, and very gradually, I've come to realize there is nothing more than the gospel. There is nothing beyond it. There's nothing higher than the gospel. I need to go deeper into it, and I need it to go deeper into me. But that's all there is. The gospel is it. It's what's changing you and me into the likeness of Jesus. We need to grasp a deeper understanding of what it means that I have been crucified with Christ. Or, you have died and your life is hid in Christ. Or, the command to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's all part of the gospel. That's the old, old story of Jesus and his love for us. For redeemed sinners... Every affliction that we experience is is the preparation or working that eternal weight of glory for us, and it only comes through us because of the gospel. It only comes because of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Jesus not only came as a baby, he not only died, he not only rose from the dead to bear the penalty for our sin, to take the Father's wrath for us, and not only to bring us back into a right relationship with the Father, 
not only to secure an eternal home for us, but he came to ensure that our afflictions right here and now are working for our good excessively to excess for that eternal weight of glory for it. It's the riches of God's grace that he's lavished upon us. That's why we can say things like David did in Psalm 31. He said this, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow. He sounds like he's going through all kinds of afflictions. My years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones are wasted away. Because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten, like one who's dead. Maybe you felt that way at one time or another, forgotten. But then he continues, but... One of the most important words in all of Scripture. But, pay attention to that. But, he says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. David understood the idea that something was being prepared for us, something was being stored up for him, something was being worked for those who take refuge in God. It's God's actions in our life that brings about our obedience to see Jesus, to see the gospel, to see those things that are unseen. So, For you and I today, where are we at? How are we dealing with our afflictions, big or small? Are you experiencing the lavishness of God's grace on you through your affliction? Paul was given a thorn in the flesh when he had that experience of being brought up into paradise. And he says it was to keep him from being too elated at what he saw. A thorn is that nagging irritation that keeps reminding us that it's there. In my work, I often get slivers of wood frequently. And the bigger ones are somewhat easier to pull out, but it's those tiny ones, those little things you can't see that are often the most frustrating. You know they're there because you, your finger just kind of naturally goes to them and tries to pick at it. It's just nag, a nagging irritation. That's what our afflictions are like sometimes. Just that nagging irritation for us. For Paul, he asked the Lord to remove that thorn, whatever it was. God's answer was, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in weakness. So, the question for us today is, is God's grace sufficient for you in your affliction? And how do we experience that grace? How how does God pour that out on us? How does he supply us with that grace? We often speak of the ordinary means of God's grace, the means by which he blesses us. Those different activities that we do that he pours out his grace to us while we're doing those. We're talking about the study of his word. Pastor Thomas preached about that last Sunday. That's one means that God gives us his grace. We talk about prayer the Lord's Supper, baptism. Let me give you a couple other means of 
God pouring out his grace to us, just from Hebrews chapters 10, 11, and 12 here, when the author is talking about some suffering here that these Old Testament saints have gone through. Just some means by which God pours out his grace to us. Or on the negative side of that, how we can block or inhibit his grace being poured out to us and thereby cause our afflictions or our sufferings not to be preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, make sure you understand here, we're not talking about our initial salvation here. We're talking about people that have been born again, people that have been blessed by God with salvation, how he's restored us to himself. But thinking about how God blesses us with, through our afflictions. Hebrews 11, right at the beginning of the chapter, verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. If you've bought into the lie of evolution in any way, shape, or form, you are limiting the flow of God's grace to you. That lie affects our thinking, affects our minds in ways we can't even imagine because we tend to focus on the here and now. We tend to focus on what we can see. That's what evolution talks about. It keeps us occupied with the here and now of what our senses are telling us. It's amazing how often scripture refers to God as the creator. The Psalms are full of references to that. Let me give you three simple references. One from Isaiah chapter 40. This is what it says there. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by God. How often do we kind of think in those terms? God's not present with me. He's hidden himself from me in my affliction. He's disregarded my right to do something. And here's the answer that God gives us. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Or, from the New Testament, 1 Peter 4.19. Peter's talking to those people that are already suffering a great deal. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Or, at the end of the book, Revelation 4.11, John sees the throne in heaven and the 24 elders are worshiping around that throne constantly, all 24 hours a day. And they're singing or saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. From the beginning, Genesis 1.1, all the way to Revelation, Scripture lays out creation as a foundation to be believed and trusted in. Why such an emphasis on that? Well, one reason is this. If you're not believing in a creator... It distorts your view 
of God as being sovereign. And if God is not sovereign to you, it distorts your view of your afflictions. It makes it very difficult for you to see the unseen. And it blocks the flow of God's grace to you in those afflictions. Some of you have heard in more detail than what I'm going to share with you the time when Evie and I had our foster kids taken away from us and we were we kept in situations like that where you go through some problems and difficulties you often are looking for the why in all this what is God doing and even years later you want to see what God has been doing in all of that and for us that happened almost 30 years ago now and there still isn't anything clear that we can see with our eyes as to what was happening there but we do know one thing that we've realized that God was speaking to us about his sovereignty it was one of the building blocks that he was using to teach us that he was sovereign in all that he does. God does as he pleases. And what he pleases is always good. He is a good God. If you need some help in this area, if, if evolution seems like an attractive subject for you, get a hold of some of the resources from the Institute for Creation Research, or Answers in Genesis. Um, they've got some fabulous materials that will help you greatly in that. ICR has both materials for your children, simple for them, but they've also got some very technical information for those of you who need some real scientific information to go through. Take advantage of those if you need that. A second means of receiving God's grace for us. There's a familiar verse in Hebrews 10, 25. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God pours out his grace when his people meet together, like this morning. There's a working of his spirit here in our gathering that's simply not there as individuals. Now, some of us do need to be a little more regular here Sunday mornings. Some of us need to be more regular at 9 o'clock, September through May, either to be a teacher for our young people or to be a participant in a class. Some of us need to be more regular when the church gathers for prayer or when we just get together for fellowship or you need to be more regular in your life group. It's important, especially if you're going through some afflictions, not to forsake the assembling of yourself together. We need each other. And we need to be given the opportunity to one another each other, especially in the midst of our afflictions. If we don't take advantage of that, in some sense, we are wasting our afflictions for that eternal weight of glory. Another means of receiving God's grace from Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 34 says, and he's speaking there of those people who have already gone through some suffering. It says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since, or because, or for, 
you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The joyful acceptance of the plundering of your property. You think about that for a second. I would dare say none of us have experienced the plundering of our property. Not to say anything about the joyful acceptance of that. We have little experiences, maybe, about that. Yesterday I was at home getting ready for the sermon, and there was a hard knock on our door, and the mail lady was out there. And normally, you know, if she's got a package, she just drops it off at the front door, rings the doorbell, and leaves. She was persistently knocking, and immediately, you know, I'm in the middle of something important here, you know, I'm getting ready for today. And this little bit of irritation kind of starts to well up inside of me. I go down, and and she's there, and she has our mail, and she also has this empty box. And I see that it's this belt sander that I had ordered a couple days ago. And she rather apologetically says, I'm sorry, but this box was empty when we received it. And I'm thinking in my head as I'm kind of thanking her for making the effort to come out of her truck up the driveway to bring me the mail and tell me all this. I'm thinking somebody plundered my property. The box was ripped open. There was nothing in it. And there was a stamp on it. This box was open when we received it at the Woodbury Post Office. And there's this irritation in my mind. Not only that I had gotten interrupted, but I lost my belt sander. Now I'm going to have to go through all the rigmarole of filing a claim or doing something to tell them what happened here. It's a little irritation, but it sometimes speaks volumes to where our hearts are about our possessions, about what we hold on to. Here in the United States, what do we tend to do? We accumulate and we accumulate and we accumulate more and more. Where is your joy found in? The stuff that you have or is it, are you able to say with these people in Hebrews, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. It's not An abiding one means it's not going away. It's going to be there for us. It's better. Finally, Hebrews chapter 12, right at the beginning of that chapter, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people that have joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, let's lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're back to the gospel again. We're looking to Jesus. We're setting our eyes on him. We're being occupied with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. We all face different afflictions. It, it doesn't matter who we are. It's common to all of us, but we don't have to lose heart in that. Let me finish with a, a little quote from Jim Elliot. I think most of you know that name. He was a missionary 
that was killed along with four others back in 1956 in the jungles of Ecuador. He's probably right now more famous for this phrase that he wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He wrote that in his diary or his journal shortly after he graduated from college. He's probably 22 years old when he wrote that, when he was thinking that way. Around the same time, he also wrote this. Overcome anything in the confidence of your union with him. Overcome anything in the confidence of your union with him so that or in order that contemplating trial, enduring persecution or loneliness, you may know the blessedness of the joy set before you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that you have set before us. Thank you for the joy that can be ours in Jesus. Thank you for the example that our Savior has set for us. Thank you for the expectancy that we can have of that eternal weight of glory awaiting us. Thank you that here and now our afflictions are working for us. They are preparing that glory for us. They are producing it. So, Father, help us to rest in that fact, to trust in that fact, to believe in who you are as our God and as our Savior, as our Master, as our Creator, as the Lord of all of your universe. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.